Hey, all right. So I am now on the line with a Miss Kelsey Chow, who is a dance professional at Tropic Soul Dance Studio in Sydney, Australia. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you were born in Hong Kong, but currently living in uh, the Sydney, Australia. Yep, that's right. Hey, hey, how are you doing today, Kelsey? I'm doing good. Um, <laughs> thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Hey. I'm a little nervous, but I'm great. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Um, so I guess I, I want to start this out, Miss Kelsey. I don't know if you mind me asking, but um, you, know, you were born in in Hong Kong, Korea. How long did you live there? Um, I lived there for sixteen years, and hey. I've been in for about seven and a half years now. Um, so I grew up there. Um, I studied high school. I studied elementary school. All that. Um, and then when I got to senior year, um, I just wasn't happy. My family wasn't happy. Like you know, whatever's happening in Hong Kong right now, for someone who's been there, it started really early on. The signs were there, so we decided, you know what, we need to find somewhere better. We need to find somewhere with a better education. Um, find somewhere that is better acceptance. There's less um, there's less prejudice. There's no discrimination. So we came to Australia and just loved it there. You know, I went to school. I went to university. Um, my parents eventually found jobs there too. Um, my mom's studying a PhD, so it's great. And then here I am doing dancing pretty much like full time. Um, my sister's turning college, so I really love it. It's great. Um, I don't. Do you mind if we speak on Hong Kong for a little bit? No, not at all. Oh man. Okay, yeah, definitely. Because um, I've definitely been hearing about what's happening in Hong Kong, and it's pretty crazy. Um, if you don't mind me asking, I guess, how was your childhood growing up in Hong Kong? Like, what do you remember of it? Um, I remember that. It was a lot. Um, the culture itself was a lot more different. So I was born in 1995, which means I was two years right before the handover. So when I grew up, I remember my childhood being um, very, uh, the great. Uh, there's a huge emphasis on knowing your English, but also knowing where you come from. So also knowing your Mandarin, also knowing your Cantonese. So for me, I loved my childhood I look back and I'm like I'm very proud to be able to share the fact that I'm a combination of what Hong Kong used to be we were a British colony but we still have our Chinese roots and we keep that you know so um growing up um but still it's a traditional Chinese city you know so I remember growing up I had one of I had those on series of traditional Chinese parents like I started dancing at a young age and they'd be like no that's not the right job for you be a doctor be a lawyer and stuff like that you know I've been through all that stuff but um growing up it um they kind of just went over it and they understood that this is what I love which is great but I still had um I still focused on my studies you know we always made sure that academics having a good education is really really important but um I think especially because of the Western side of thinking because they believed in um in free thought they they uh, appreciated the arts a lot more that it kind of cultivated more of a passion in me since a young age and I knew that that was what I wanted to pursue you know rather than a more traditional um, white collar job I knew that I wanted something that it was um more insightful it was something that was more meaningful to me and it's something that was practical I want to do things with my hands. Rather than do things with the books, which is unlike what a lot of people in Hong Kong, a lot of people in China want to do, but it's great. Yeah, so my childhood was pretty good. I definitely understand that. Um, 
Come here. Take it. Come here. Hey, if you can leave a like and subscribe, that would be amazing for the channel. Let's get back I understand to the show. that. Um, let me ask you this real quick. Uh, you know, we, we obviously both have different backgrounds. So I'm very curious, you know, what was it like growing up, you know, with, um, I guess, you know, your parents from Hong Kong? What was it like growing up in that household? Um, it's, ooh, <laughs> it's, um, growing up, it was chaotic when I, when I was young, in a way, um, because Hong Kong itself is a chaotic city. You know, I live in a very urban, at the time, still very developed place. Real quick, real quick. What part of Hong Kong did you live in? I lived in Kowloon. Kowloon, so, okay. So, um, if you go to Hong Kong, there's a there's a mall. It's called Festival Walk. I literally am, like, 10 minutes away. So, I live in one of those... Um, it, at the time, it was still being um, developed. So... I lived in shabby apartments, place, spaces were really, really small, and Hong Kong culture still sticks to that, unless, like, it, it is, unless you are coming from a wealthy family, most likely the space that you live in looks like a studio apartment. So I, I shared a bed with my sister until I came to Australia. I didn't have my own bedroom. Um, um, at the time, we didn't have iPhones, <laughs> we didn't have laptops, computers, and all that. So I remember my childhood, we had a lot of attention with each other. Um, TV only just came in, so it was, it was great. Um, that's, and that's why it's very, it's even more chaotic, because there are a lot of things that are fake on. Like, I spoke a lot to my parents. We argued a lot, but we always resolved a lot. And it's great, you know. Um, I remember from a young age, um, they would always... Um, I was never homeschooled, but I remember having like summer school. So which means I would stay home every day. My parents would have a schedule going like, hey, you need to study this, study this, study this. And they would do it with me. They wanted to make sure that I was um, like, like emphasizing again on the importance of education, you know, especially um, during my generation. I remember everything was changing and they wanted to change the mindset of the young to be like, Hong Kong is unique. Hong Kong is not part of China, nor is it part of the British colony anymore. This is us in our own way, trying to make a statement for the new generation that we are our own, you know, and we're proud of that. We're proud to be a combination. We're proud to be a mixture. And, um, and I remember a lot of that. My parents kind of supported that kind of education back then as well. They were very happy that I was able to speak fluent English because um, from the start they gave me a lot of English textbooks they would play a lot of Disney Disney my childhood which is crazy but um, that's why um, I was able to kind of form sentences whereas a lot of people in Hong Kong today have a lot of broken English because it's not really embedded in their culture anymore right now it's more of the emphasis on Mandarin rather than English which is I find a little bit tragic but still it's um chaotic it's a lot of um a balance between um mandarin and english because my parents love languages so i remember doing that a lot um it's it's a lot of finding myself because i come from a, a, a place where the world is changing the world is developing we didn't have a lot of resources but we were still it's like it's a lot on self-identity you know I, I you have to identify yourself as being hong kongese no not chinese you know, which is a big difference. Um, and I studied in local school. I didn't study in any international school. So I grew up in a proper local school with Hong Kong teachers and all that. So for me, 
um, it's easier um, through experience to say how I, I could observe the changes in what I was studying. I can observe the changes in what my teachers and my parents were saying in my head or what they were trying to get me to think, what they were trying um, to mold me into, you know, and that's why, hence, when I later grew up, when I was in my teenage, uh, my teenage years, like 15, 16, and I noticed the textbooks were a little bit different. You know, English wasn't that big of a priority, and rather, a lot of the material that they started teaching was very, very biased. So they started being like, hey, um, why is China such a modern city? Why is it better than other countries? Now, that kind of rings a bell. That That's not good. You know, and even my parents could see that's not good. Okay, so, okay. Yeah, yeah, It's now, trying me... to get a little bit political. I'm sorry. But... No, you're good. I want to hear all this. Um, No, that's perfectly fine. I, let me ask you this real quick. Um, You know, I guess, what were some of your childhood hobbies growing up in Hong Kong? You know, what did you enjoy doing? Ah, okay. Um, I love dancing. <laughs> So I started ballet when I was two years old, and I didn't stop. Even when I went to Australia, I actually didn't stop until I had my public exams. So that was probably the one year that I can say that I had zero dancing. But yeah, I've just been dancing all my life. Um, I was a um, I was an athlete, so I did um, a lot of competitive swimming. Um, I was in the badminton and the tennis team. I did alpine skiing. So. I did a lot of sport at one point that my parents looked at me and or they remind me that when I was young, I used to say, hey, I want to be one of three things when I grow up. I don't want to be a dancer. I want to be an Olympic swimmer or I want to be an architect. So <laughs> they're all very, awesome. very different. Yeah. yeah, it's cool. That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, so, so, you know, you're growing up in Hong Kong, um, I guess. Do you, as you're growing up there, do you start to, is it through school how you start to notice the change in, like, I guess, your hometown? Or or is it, like, do things ever change for you? Like, what made your parents leave, I guess? Was it a better opportunity outside of Hong Kong? Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, it's not, for me, personally, I could see it in the books because I was still at school. But for the rest of my family or for everyone else who had a job, who have finished their studies, um, it was a little more obvious on a social level. Like you go on the street and you notice um, there are people with suitcases just going around and they don't speak fluent Cantonese. And what they do is they create all this chaos on the streets because they think they own them. Because they think, oh, we're part of the greater, like the greater country. You're part of us. We can do whatever we want. And we were like, no. I don't want to get into too much details, but I can say that nothing's violent. It's all very peaceful. It's all at the time it was still very nice and resolved, but you could tell that there was a bit of concern for us. So just to name a couple of examples that were properly announced on social media, we had a phase where a lot of people in the mainland were coming in to consume or to purchase um, baby formula because um, Hong Kong had it much cheaper. They would literally take the train, come to Hong Kong, buy baby formula, stuff in their suitcase, fly back. You know, and we're like, yo, we have children of our own to feed. You can't just take away all our baby formula. And, and, so, and, so, what, like, and so what, just buying it in like mass quantities? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. They would uh -huh. go to the soup like and it's and it's not like they are going to the supplier and buying it in bulk. No, they go to the supermarket. They go to the grocery store. Just literally take them off the shelf, put them in the in the bag. And we're like looking at the shelves going like, hey, that ain't cool. And I've seen supermarkets with shelves with like maybe two cans of baby formula and everything else is fine. And I'm like, that's weird. You know, so I look back and I'm like, huh. Oh, well. So that was one example. And we were like, yeah, sure. Uh, whatever. Um, there was one more example that I remember from the top of, that I suddenly forgotten from the top of my head. But you, I think you kind of get an idea, you know, even these little details or these little acts just on a social level you just want to go to the grocery store okay, and you not being fair yeah and no, i definitely understand that i definitely do um i guess <laughs> we'll, we'll get back to dancing i guess then let me ask you yeah, this well, then um <laughs> went like a total social political route which is crazy but i like it like thank you for asking because it's nice to be to, for someone to be able to ask for that um kind of experience because I hear a lot of people even in Sydney they're not sure so I'm I'm actually really glad that I can talk about it of course I'm glad you can as well I mean I still want to talk about it further but um let me ask you this real quick you know how important was music in your household when you were growing up oh very important um my parents love a lot of the old um 80s 90s American music so my parents never liked Hong Kong music, which was hilarious. They love ABBA, they love BB, they love that kind of really old school music. And I, um, they liked a bit of Michael Jackson, but I loved him more. And I grew up listening to a lot of American kind of uh, pop music, R&B. Um, so it just kind of gave me like a really strong um, uh, kind of urge to move. Like I really wanted to dance. I really wanted to just groove to it, you know? And I, I, I actually forgot to say, I did a bit of musical theater as well. So in Hong Kong, they have an Academy of Performing Arts and I did musical theater since I was 13. I just auditioned for some musical and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to get it. I, I'm not musically trained. I'm not singing trained. All I know how to do is dance. So I'm like, yeah, nah, like it's not going to work. And I did, and I nailed a role. Nice, that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, so um, it's something that I still love. Like, I, I I love Broadway musicals because I watch the choreography and it's very, very different, you know? So for me, it also inspires me. I love the way that singing can be translated uh, or singing can be used as a powerful language to just, you know, create um, a message or send something that is very important. So it's great. And then obviously, like, so listening to Broadway musicals, listening to a lot of American pop, a lot of American R&B, and I'm like, this is great, you know, so that, that's what influenced me growing up, and I just love to dance even more to that music. Uh, all right, this is something that I'm, I'm very curious to know about. Uh, how big of an influence does, you know, I guess, Western culture, Western society, how big of an influence does that have on Hong Kong? Did you, did you, did you notice that at all? Oh, yeah, of course I did. Like, back then, it had a huge influence. We even had our own um, TV program. It's called, because uh, we, uh, so the Hong Kong channel is called TV. It's television broadcasting. And they, I remember growing up, they set up their own channel called TVB Pearl, which means it was all in English. Every newspaper article that they had, was, or every, um, Kind of report was dubbed back in English 
and they would replay a lot of American shows, which is why I grew up like loving Western culture. And I'm, when I moved to Australia, it was so much easier. So they would play a lot of like, so cliche to say this, but I grew up watching a lot of America's Next Top Model and Project Runway. That was the main stuff that they played on a Saturday, Sunday night. And I'm like, this is awesome. You know? <laughs> So, yeah, it definitely Western culture just changed a lot. You know, like you could see it on the media, on TV. Um, you could um, studying as well. Like you could tell that the books that we had to read started to be a lot more complicated. And when I grew up in elementary school, they actually would um, bring in a couple of foreign proper Western teachers just to come in and teach literature which is amazing, you know, that's why I grew up and I'm like, I was loving the arts even more because I know before then they would focus a lot of Chinese texts and a lot of Chinese history, Chinese literature. And don't get me wrong, I love them. But being a six-year-old not knowing what Chinese or English literature is and your first exposure is English literature, you know, and I thought this is amazing. This is what I love. And I love English more than, um, well, it's very bad to say this, but I preferred English as my language more than Cantonese or um, or Mandarin. I still speak fluently in both of them, but I find it much more comfortable with English, you know, because of what I was surrounded with. Now, I definitely understand that. Wait, real quick, let me, I want to show off real quick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. Hey, it was, it would be like, ni hui shua Mao? Ma? Ma. So nah. it's literally, ah, M-A. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, well done. <laughs> it's in everything. It's like <laughs> so it's like it's right on the money. Well done. Hey, 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 hey. That's the thing though, with um with Mandarin, there are different ways to say yes or no, right? Like to affirm something. Yeah, so the that's the complicated thing. We have like how many provinces in China? You go to a different city and the dialect of Mandarin just changes a little bit. But the uh, the basic alphabet doesn't. So um, even if you went to like Beijing or you went up north to those provinces, they would say it a little bit quicker, a little bit slower. Um, but the, the way that you're intonating, they can understand, oh, okay, you might have learned it from like more of a southeast province, but we understand what you're saying. So yeah. it's, it's kind of like how you go to, um, trying to name a good example. It's like when you go to the UK. And right, you go right, Ireland. Right. Oh, Ireland, that's a good example. So there's a different parts of Ireland and they speak kind of, they have different accents, they have different ways of um, speaking, but the alphabet still stays the same. We still spell A, B, C, E, F, G. So same thing. Nah, Dev, you're right about that. I went real quick for anyone listening. I just, I said I speak a little bit of Mandarin and I asked her if you spoke any Mandarin. <laughs> um, but so real quick, let me ask you this, though. I'm very curious to hear. So you said you moved to Australia when you were 16. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So so let me ask you this, then. Um, you know, I guess I'm very curious to hear kind of like a two-part question here. Um, the first part being, you know, what was that first year like when you moved to Australia? You know, what was that transition like for you? And the second part being, you know, um. Could you compare Hong Kong and, and Australia? You know, what, what, how are they different? Are they similar at all? Yeah. Okay. So the transition for me, for the, I would say for the first three months, it was a little strange. Um, it was um, more on a uh, personal level because I went to boarding school, actually. 
So I went to school, really great school called Aspen, um, located in Sydney, which is great. Shout out to them. And um, I remember a lot of the ways that I would even gesture to my teachers. Like in Hong Kong, traditionally, we have to give a really small bow to our teachers just to say hi. We don't go, oh, hey, Mrs. Lockwood or whatever the heck. You know, you actually look at your teacher and you actually give them like a tiny bow. It's and it was something that I grew up with for 16 years. And I right, remember, of course. I went, yeah, and I remember I went to uh, uh, Australia, I went to Sydney, and I accidentally bowed in front of my deputy headmistress, and she gave me this huge lecture going like, now, now, Kelsey, you don't do that in Australia. And I'm like, yo, okay, calm down. I, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. Next time I'll wave at you. And she's like, yes, please. And I walked off like, oh, wow. So... I find that um, the transition for the first three months was a little rocky because for me, I couldn't tell what was right and what was wrong, especially in terms of um, personal interaction. You know, the other thing that was hard to transition was actually clothing. So um, Hong Kong, I always wore things that were very, very um, conservative. Um, I wore like I wore like proper pajamas and then I came to Australia and people are wearing like a Peter Alexander kind of skimpy shorts. And I look at them going like, aren't you cold? They look at me and they go, aren't you too warm? And I'm like, it's, it's very, very different, but it's cool. And then eventually I started um, getting used to being in Sydney three months later. Um, so I got to study. Um, we had school uniforms, so that wasn't the problem. Um, but for me, the transition was so quick because, um, and then leading on to your second question as well, it's different, yes. It's very, very different in a way that Sydney is actually much more socially accepting. It is um, much more harmonic, and I don't feel like I always need to be quiet or isolated. I can go to the streets, yell, yo, hello, good morning, and someone would say good morning back to me. So I find that the Sydney society is a lot more lenient. It's a lot more happy. It's a lot more chill. You know, that's why we're called down under. You know, we we're here down under and we're just chilling it. We're living the life where there's not. There, obviously, we want to get with the times, but there isn't really a huge need for it. You know, and for example, like um, on the topic of salsa bachata as well. Um, I know that Australia is behind from the west of, from the rest of the world and obviously to some extent we want to keep up with the patterns we want to keep up with the trends but at the same time we don't really have a big urgency to we started our community in year 2000 which is like years 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 later than every other city in the world so we're like nah it's cool we're just gonna go with the flow and see how it goes we have our own ways we have our own um we have our own pace and that's what I really loved about Australia growing up because they let me transition at my own pace. There was no sense of urgency to be like, you have to be this, this, this. You have to learn how to cook a sausage on the barbie. Like there was none of those. It was like, nah, take your time. And everyone was really nice. They were, um, they were very eager to know what it was like growing up from Hong Kong because most of them never been. In fact, most of the people I knew were from the country. So they grew up in rural areas, which was, again, very different. I went to my first farm. Um, I stayed over at a farmhouse, which is great. And you never get to do that in Hong Kong. Like, where are you going to find a farm with cows and sheep and chickens in Hong Kong? It's impossible. So, uh, it, yeah, it was a it was a 
it was a change that had a rocky start because of my mannerisms and what I was used to, but it became a lot easier after the first three months um, because everyone was just so accepting. And for me, it was so much less uptight. Yeah, um, I think it also probably made it an easier transition because you had probably perfected your English by that time, right? Or you were able to speak yeah. it at least. Yeah, I, I I like to think that way. <laughs> I like I think I I at the time I I would still be able to write sentences. I think the way that I was speaking had a mixed American accent. Like I grew up in Hong Kong, everyone's like, "Oh, you're American." I'm like, "I'm not American. I'm from Hong Kong." You know what are you talking about? But I, because, like what I said, all the Amer- all the Tyra Banks, all the Heidi Klum, the Project Runway stuff. I watched so much TV and I listened to so much Disney that I will repeat what I say. You know, and that's what kids do. They repeat what they hear. So that's why I have uh, this weird accent. That sure it's fooling. You can understand it, but there's also a bit of a brokenness to it. Which is coming from the Hong Kong side of it. Okay, I mean, I'm I'm able to have a conversation with you, and um, I guarantee you, your English is way better than my Mandarin. So we are good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I we're gonna get into dancing, I promise you. But let me ask you this real quick. Um, I don't know if you if you even know this, but how was the transition for your parents? Do you know? Um, actually, um, I only know one side of it. Because at the time I was busy with my, um, I came into Australia just in my, uh, uh, just as they, uh, just as my year, my class was about to do their public exam, so I didn't really have time to talk to my parents as much at the time. I was busy studying. But one thing I didn't know for sure, so my dad was the first person to come to Sydney with me. He was able to find a job. He found an apartment um, in the central business district because that was kind of where he worked when I was in boarding school. Um, the transition was difficult at first. It was mostly on a financial level, you know, because a lot of things are really unpre- uh, like unprecedented. It's unpredictable. We don't know whether we were going to stay here in the long run. Um, we don't know whether we're going to move to maybe a different state or a different place, but we knew we wanted to stay in Australia. So we were trying to see whether it could happen. And thankfully, my dad found a really good job. Um, he he worked more for property. And I, and I was very lucky that my grades were going really, really well. So it just kind of proves the show. Sydney might be the right place. So then my mom came over and she signed up for an, a PhD, which is great. So she's now um, she, a part-time PhD, so she's still working on it. We've been here for eight years. She's almost finishing it up. And it's about, and you know what? She's funny enough. She's writing about um, being a teacher in Hong Kong because she's an educator. That's hence why all the language and the linguistics in it. And she's writing a paper just to research about um, how the difference between Western and, and Hong, uh, Western and Eastern culture in the education system, which is great. Um, so the transition for my parents was a struggle, similar to me, I think. It was a struggle at first because financially we don't know what was going to happen. And we were a little bit scared at first because I wanted to stay and my parents wanted to stay, but you've got to make it happen. And if you're, if you're a parent with two kids and like a spouse, it's a lot on your shoulders. Um, but my sister did end up coming to Australia as well. She studied in the same school as I did. We both passed uh, or ate the exams with flying colors. We're both in our own respective routes in college and were able to kind of 
find our own jobs and hold and hold on our own two feet. You know, so I'm currently able to, ha- you know, have dancing as a full time job and I'm able to sustain myself with the money I earn from my dancing. My sister at the moment, she's getting there. She's studying economics in Melbourne. She's really happy. Um, and my mom and my dad can now finally relax and get the time for themselves that they deserve, which is great. So it's a lot of hard work put into the transition, but it all paid off in the end. Okay, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I got I got a couple of questions I want to ask you, but I guess this is just start at the beginning. So you know, you you moved to Australia, um, and. I guess were you provided the opportunity to, to start dancing then, or did you have to wait till after you graduated high school and college and everything? Um, which style of dance? <laughs> Ooh, okay, so the, uh, let's start that then. What what did you start with? I started with ballet. Um, back in Hong I, Kong. They, yeah, back in Hong Kong two years ago. So here's like a short blurb of how much I've been dancing. Yeah, so two so I was two years old. I started ballet. I did all the exams. So there's a Royal Academy of Dance exam. It's um, in London. And I completed every examination possible. So I went up to, so for all those who know ballet, I went up to advanced one. I didn't go up to advanced two and solo steel because I continued to go to Australia. So I had to study. It's okay. uh, That's a story for another day. It's like a huge grid of list of exams and all that. Um, But while I was still doing ballet, I found it very, very uptight, and at the same time, I didn't have the shape for being a ballerina. So first of all, I was not shorter. So I'm actually 5'1". I'm a tiny girl. And the other thing is I'm very broad-shouldered. So you can't see with the t-shirt that I'm wearing at the moment, but I'm actually a rather muscular girl because at the time I also did, like what I said, I did all the swimming. You did sports, right? Yeah, I was a sporty girl. And my ballet teacher hated it. She was like, she had all these other girls who were like five, 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 six, really skinny. And then all of a sudden you have this short, muscular girl. And she's like, what am I going to do with you? But I was still the one getting the highest mark in my examination in ballet. So I still excelled maybe because of my ethnicism that I was um, able to hold my own two feet really well. I wasn't the most flexible, but I was the strongest, you know, physically. And, um, so when I was 13, I did musical theater. I decided to audition out of the blue. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to get it. <laughs> I don't sing. I, go, I, don't, I don't act. Let's play around. And I got in and I got a role. So I'm like, oh, great. This is awesome. And I continued. Uh, and that's where I started learning jazz. So I found this company. It's called MT Jazz. Um, it's a very small company in Hong Kong. But one of uh, the owner of the company was actually my choreographer for the musical that I did. And he invited me, yo, do you want to learn some jazz? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Like, I want to broaden my horizon. I don't I don't see myself being a ballerina, but I see myself potentially being a dancer. So if I want to dance, it's good to know every style. It's good to know every technique, you know? So I pursued it. I went to learn jazz. So I learned classical jazz, and I learned um, jazz funk hip-hop, which is really popular today now. So I'm glad that I know a bit of that. Um, and then when I moved to Australia, I had a year where I just didn't dance because I had my public exams and I'm glad that I did because I aced it. I went to college. Then from there, I discovered break dancing. A lot of people don't see me as a break dancer. I'm a girl. I'm, I, I, I have a feminine voice. I have long hair. I did ballet. What the heck? <laughs> All of a sudden you're on the streets, you know, 
Um, but it's true. We, in our college campus, it's a very huge outdoor space. Shout out to the University of New South Wales. And there's a space right under this building. And it was my second day of school, my second day. And I remember seeing these dudes just doing handstands and doing flips. And I'm like, dude, this is cool. And I stood there for like a solid 10 minutes. And I'm like, do I want to go over? Do I want to go over? Do I want to go over? And I did. I walked over and I'm like, this is cool. Can you teach me? And funny enough, one of them was from Taiwan. And he found out that I was from Hong Kong and we spoke Mandarin fluently. So that's how I got into breakdancing. It was from multicultural exchange. It was from this dude that I was able to speak Mandarin with. So he taught me how to do handstands. He taught me how to do freezes. He taught me how to do breakdancing. I did that for like, I think, I did it for two and a half years. So I would, I would just be in the, in the street. You're good at it. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't just at uni as well. It was um, at other places too. They had other, it was a huge, there's a huge breakdancing hip hop community in Sydney. And it's really cool. You know, uh, we have a really um, famous um, breakdancing competition in the Southeast Asia area. And I never entered it. No, not close to good enough. But that was like, at the time I would hang out in those communities, you know, I would wear baggy shirts, sneakers, you know, um, but it comes to a point that similar to my ballet, I knew it's not my thing. I'm, I'm not, I'm strong, but I'm not that strong. These people are able to spin on their heads. Yeah, I've the seen it. They don't it. You know, and I'm like, I don't want that, you know, but I'm glad that I learned it because later on, two of my best friends in college, they're like, hey, we're about to take a salsa class. So there's a Latin dance society in college and they're like, we're about to learn salsa. And I look at them going like, ha, what a joke, me in high heels. Yeah, no way. And I had a boy cut at the time. So I had really short hair. I had a shaved side. I was a tomboy to the team. And they're like, nah, come over and have some fun. I'm like, okay. I, as soon as I finished that first salsa class, I was like, you know, it was an absolute beginner class. Just face a step, right hand turn. But then I couldn't find myself getting away from it. So I started off as a salsa dancer. And then the school that I'm teaching in now, or that I work for now at Tropical Soul, they held auditions for a bachata team. And my same friends, they were like, hey, go do it. I'm like, nah, man, nah. Like, I only know salsa. And I started off one of those prejudiced people. You're either salsa or bachata. And bachata central, eel, salsa. You know, I was one of those. I was very narrow-minded at the time. Um, but my teacher, Juan, he saw me at the auditions, and he gave me a call. Like, he gave me a phone call, not a text message. And he looked at me, and he goes, well, how do you think you went into the audition? And I was like, I think I was terrible. I have no pachata. I have no movement in the hips. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't understand why you're calling me. And he's like, well, yeah, your technique's shit. <laughs> he straight up said that. Your technique's shit. But you're a very fast learner. And yeah, I, but, I mean, yeah, but you're probably willing to learn. So that's all that matters, right? Exactly, yeah. He saw that I was willing to learn. And I was the only person in the group. He said you were the only person who got the pattern the first time. Everyone else took like five minutes just to suss out the pattern and get it right. You got it right the first time. He's like, and, me, and it was a partner work routine. So he's like, so you're in the team. But you got to come to class. You got to do all these classes. You got to... We are going to be training two, uh, like two days a week. Good luck. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, so hold on, hold on. I want to hear about all this. I definitely want to hear about all this. Oh, okay. I do really, but let me ask you this though. Um, so when did you start salsa? Would like how long ago? What year? So I started 
salsa 2016. Okay, okay, okay. So let me ask you this then. You know, going back to 2016, what was your beginner stage like? Oh, God, it was terrible. <laughs> like, um, I look back, and I was definitely a massive fat eater. <laughs> so it, it sucks, because I, I did all this ballet, so everything I, every time I did my right-hand turn, there was no lead. I was like, yep, I got to. I did the turn by myself. You know, I was one of those. Cross-body lead, I would just walk right through the dude, and there's no connection. Um, and I thought I was doing the right thing. You know, that's part of learning how to follow, though, right? Yeah, exactly. I thought I was doing the correct thing. And it wasn't until I started going social dancing and my teacher um, runs a social dancing night. So for anyone in Sydney, it's called um, Off Broadway, Off Broadway Hotel on a Monday night. It's one of the longest social nights held ever in the city. It's great. And good music, good salsa. The chat is okay, but the drink is deep. Um, so my teacher runs this night, he's the DJ, he's the organizer, and I went to social dance and I danced with him. And he looked at me dead in the eye and he said, you are not following anything, but I want you to do so well and I believe in you. Go back to your basics. So I redid a beginner's class maybe two times just to be able to understand if you believe, if you can follow before I went up to intermediate, which is crazy, you know, but I'm very glad that he said that to me. Um, his name's Graham, by the way. I'm glad that Graham actually took the chance to be like, I love you, but your dancing sucks. <laughs> Please work on it. And I appreciated that honesty that motivated me to and up to a stage where I can, I feel like I can sleep with him. I can feel like I can sleep on a I can sleep and I can dance. That's, that's basically what a follow is. You're basically half asleep, but your body is already responsive to what's going on, which is great. So, yeah, that that journey was very interesting. And oh. I don't dance in my first pair of high heels hey. till I got into that comp team. Till that okay. Well, real quick, real quick, let me ask you this. Because yeah. um, I know there are a lot of people out there who have that same issue, you know. Uh, hold on, my, phone, my phone's going off. Sorry about that. Um. There are, <laughs> um, I was saying that there's a lot of people out there who are going through that same issue, you know, where um, they're having difficulties following or, you know, they're back leading themselves. So let me ask you this, Dan, to give value to someone listening, um, you know, I guess, how were you able to, you know, become a better follow and maybe, you know, stop back leading? You know, is, is there any words of advice you could give to someone to help them? This is great because I have a lot of people who come to my classes today and they start off as ballroom dancers, ballet dancers. Um, but their social dancing is not there because they're not understanding it. So what I would say, like, or what helped me is just, first of all, go social dancing. Like, the more you dance with different people, the more you understand that this is no longer something that is entirely in your control. This is a couple's dance. So if you're just going to, uh, to class and you're understanding the moves, but you're not actually using them in the right context, there's no point. So go out and find the right social night. It's as terrifying as it is, especially for beginners who, um, who are transitioning from one style to another. It's really important because you're knowing the culture. 
but you're knowing what it's like there, you know? So um, give give yourself a leap of faith. Don't be scared. I was one of those who would hide in the corner as well and have no dances in one night to someone who is confident to ask people for dances. Um, so my first advice is to go social dancing a lot. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta put yourself out there and actually experience what it's actually like in the field. If that textbook can't teach you. Um, the other thing that I definitely suggest is actually getting uh, private help. You know, so for me, I took some private lessons as well, and that helped me a lot. But it's about finding the right teacher. So I'm very lucky that my first Bajaka teacher and my first salsa teacher, they both had a big emphasis on social you know, some teachers, they tell you, oh, do this choreography or do this, which is pre-learn. You know, you learn it and you repeat it. But that's not what it's supposed to be. Social dancing, you can't repeat. You dance with the same guy, same song. And you you can't really, you can't anticipate either, right? Exactly, you can't. So I, I had, I sought private help. And the way that they taught me was really, really good. Like, that would be a huge um, rant altogether that might take, like, about 30 minutes or so but on but the most important thing that they told me is especially for follow the most important is to keep your timing everything comes down to your feet like your arms need to be as relaxed as possible so a lot of people think um especially for ballet dancers because um our whole our whole body is so controlled so we're using we're used to having our arms being placed in certain positions rather than being active you know so they trained me a lot in um in terms of relaxing my arms and actually letting my legs and my hips do the work and that that really that's an extra emphasis on the chata the hips for salsa it's the footwork and the timing you know as long as you're able to hold your own say if you lose connection you're still able to do your basic then it's fine. And I know a lot of people, they think, oh, I'm doing great because I can copy your basic stuff. And I say to them, no, it's not about copying. It's about knowing or listening to a song and you're able to identify where you're hitting or where you're supposed to step. This is something that you got to learn on your own. This is not something that um, it's, this is not something that you think, oh, I go to one class, I copy the teacher and I get it. So, um, and then the third, uh, so that's one. So no, no, that's two. <laughs> so one is social dance. Two is get private lessons with the right teachers. And for me, three is listen to a lot, a lot of music. Um, at first, I was skeptical because I'm like, huh, I don't understand that. Like out of all the Asian languages I know, I don't know. No hablo español, yeah, is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right, exactly. But, but yeah, no hablo español, pero um, and when you listen to the music, you know, you, you get comfortable with it and you start to notice the pattern in the music, right? Yeah, exactly. And you also start finding yourself or what kind of music that you like, which is the fun part. And that, for me, it's like you want to get, get it right. You want to do it right. But it's also important that you want to have fun. Like, if you're forcing yourself to do something right, then, and you're not having fun with it, then you're not a hobby. Then this is not for you. But if you're listening to the music and you're like, hey, this is my jam, this is my group, or you listen to this bachata, and I'm like, oh my God, I don't understand the words, but it's so soft, it's so gentle. Um, or if you're listening to Dominican, which is 
crazy and you go to the mumble session and you're like, hey, 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 and you sit like a merengue. Yeah, I, I mean, like, there's no greater feeling than, you know, like when the DJ puts on your favorite song, you know? Oh, yeah, for, for sure, for sure. For me, I get the biggest hit when I listen to uh, Wan Ko. Yeah, that's a, that's a very popular one. Yeah. Like, it's so, it, like, it's so dirty. Like, you kind of feel like you're a hustler, you know what I mean? Like, outside, you look nice and pretty, you look like a wallflower, and you're like, hey, what's up, girl? But then you get down to the, the instrument, you listen to the double bass in particular, and you're like, damn, this is like, she ain't playing nice. You know, I really love. Hey, let me um, let me ask you this real quick. Um, so you know, you kind of spoke on already. You have you know this vast background and all these different dancing genres, dancing styles. Yeah. Um, when you were learning salsa and bachata, do you think that previous experience? Do you think that hindered you, or did it benefit you when learning the Latin styles? Ooh, um, that's a good question. It hindered me from the start. It hindered me in the beginning as a begin as um someone who has never done salsa bachata before because like what I said, all the back leading, the differences in technique, which is leading from the hips, leading leading from the legs, compared to all this ballet and jazzy styles where everything was all about your lines. But when I started performing and I started um becoming a teacher and doing cabaret, it suddenly it started to become a huge, huge, I can't emphasize enough, because um, ballet is all in your torso. And cabaret, you're in the air. You don't have your two feet on the ground holding you. The only thing that you can do is hold your core. The only thing that you can do is create a good line. And it helped me a lot, insanely. And on top of that, when you're performing, you want to find the line with you and your partner, or say if you're doing a shine team, you want to find the best shape as much as possible. And the good thing about doing jazz and ballet and all that is they are all about, they're all about having the team doing the same shape at the same time. So when I started doing shine teams and I started doing all those, it benefited me in a way that I was easy, I was easy enough to understand, oh, okay, they're doing this shape with this muscle, this muscle, this muscle, I got you. And it was fine. So um, a lot of my performances, a lot of people come to me and they say, oh, you have really good lines. But they don't look at me and say, you look like a ballerina. And that's a good thing. You don't want, it's, it's, for me, it's, on, it's offensive. So if someone comes to you and say, like, you dance with other people, and say, oh, you look like a ballerina. And I'm like, but I'm not doing ballet. Like for me, it's a it's offensive in a way that it's a wake up call. It means that you need to start translating things that you know from your old dance experience into this new style that you're learning. And you want people to be like, seeing that you've done ballet, but your salsa, your bachata is awesome. Phrase right. it that way. You know. I say I say you're probably all that background information you know. You know it helps contribute to your own style, right? Yeah, and a lot of artists that I look up to, they've done different styles of dance. Yeah, like cross-training, right? Yeah, um, cross-training, not just cross-training, but, uh, for example, I love Carol Flores, and she still goes to um, Broadway Dance Company just to take ballet and stretching classes. So it's actually super um, helpful to know these techniques 
it's about knowing how to apply them. So it was a hinder as a beginner because at the time I didn't know how to use them. At the time I thought, okay, I have the ballet training, I can swap into any style, no problem. But it's not the case. It's about first knowing this new style, knowing the culture, knowing um, the um, what makes it different, knowing that this lead and follow system, it's not like anything you've seen before. It's not anything that you've danced before. And then when you are, when it becomes second nature, you can start putting in things that you know. You can start fancying it up. You can start making it prettier or you might start making it easier for yourself. But you need to know your timings first. You need to know the music. You need to know the style in its core first right. before you, you start acting. I say, yeah, you got to learn the rules before you can break them, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I understand that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me, uh, oh, I had a question for you. I had a question for you. Shucks. Oh, oh man, I have a really good question for you. What was I going to ask you? Um, <laughs> dang it. Oh, no. oh, okay, bingo. I remember it. All right. Um, so you told me that, you know, when you were younger, you know, your parents were, you know, very strict on, you know, the school and, you know, um, education and everything. Right. How did they react when you decided to pursue, you know, dancing as your career or, you know, as your, and I guess your main thing, you know? Oh, man. I was waiting for that one to come up eventually. <laughs> um, they reacted badly. They weren't happy. Um, actually, I remember growing up and they would use not taking me to ballet class as a punishment. Like, I don't, they lock me in my bedroom, I don't care. Not feed me dinner, I wouldn't try. I wouldn't give a sweat. I'm like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. But the moment they say, that's it, I'm not driving you to ballet class, I would be on my knees dancing, like, boring going like no mom dad please and i've been begging you know because that was what i loved and as i continued growing up i think that they were supportive in a way that they expected it to be a hobby that would fade away so they they still paid and they were still happy to financially fund my dance class they were so happy to dad and all that because they're like yeah it's good for her to get the exercise but now she's not taking it seriously then I went to college and I found and um, I wasn't just dancing like I did some videography work I know a tiny bit of videography I know how to cut music and I'm like okay this is cool and when I told my parents this is kind of what I wanted to do I want to be a teacher I want to be a choreographer I want to be an all-rounded um, professional in South and Bajata they looked at me kind of a little bit skeptical they're like ha what a joke um but they thought they they didn't stop. You know, I was uh, I'm now 24. So I first told my parents when I was 21. I started dancing salsa bachata when I was 21. And at first they were like, oh, so it's a new hobby that you took away. Um, they wanted to see they wanted me to prove them wrong, or otherwise they wanted to have themselves proven right. So, and I I'm glad to say right now. I because I now have tropical soul, like, you know, they are, I'm getting mentored, um, I am be, I'm getting paid for my work, and I'm happy to say, like, I'm doing what I love for a living. That's so awesome. Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a start, but it's so much potential, and it's always more relieving to tell your parents you have a career rather than you have a job, and I think my parents right now, they're not 
um, at the end of the day, they'll never be because of the values and the way that they were which I don't blame them at all. But I can, but I think and I hope that they can start trusting me that I know what I'm doing for myself. Because I'm, I don't want to go out there and find a white collar job and just get the money, go home, on something that fulfills me, you know. So I can tell my parents, this is my career, this is not my job. This is something that I want to do for the rest of my life. It's something that I want to invest in. And I will never get their full support, but in a way, I also know that I don't need it. It doesn't bother me anymore. Like, because this is what I know what I want. This is what's keeping me happy, keeping me healthy. And they are, you know, so for now, at the moment, they have an attitude where, like, well, whatever you think is right, go for it. If you fall, we'll catch you. We're your parents. But they'll never have the full um, satisfaction that their daughter is advanced to. But, you know, it's there's, there's certain things that hinder it, but there are also certain things that they know they can do to support it. And so they're in a kind of a gray zone, but it's something that it's something for us three, my, my both my parents and I, to kind of talk and find amongst ourselves. And I've talked and I've spoken to other um, teachers that I know around Sydney as well, or and in the United States. And they told me they had the same thing. They had parents where they were like, ah, "What a joke! Just don't even try." Not a sustainable career, but then they prove them wrong. They find money they get all these sponsors and the parents leave them be they kind of silently acknowledge okay there's no stopping you go for it we'll be on the sideline and we'll be there if you need us you know nah, i think that that's really cool and I, I think it kind of i think it speaks to you as a person like that you even at such a young age you were able to put your happiness first yeah now that's it, super important it's very very important I knew from the start I wanted to do something that I love for my job. I I refuse to do something that is just for the money. That's super duper important. That's really that speaks to you as a person that you were able to recognize that so young. That's really amazing. Because there are a lot of people who um who you know who got that that nine to five and they you know they've done it for so long that they're caught up in it now, but they're not happy. Yeah, Uh, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sad, so, but that's the world we live in sometimes, mm, you know? Yeah. And, like, in the for anyone who wants to do anything that they love, or especially in terms of salsa and bachata, um, you got you to gotta network. You got to know the right people. You got to know the style well. And that comes down to, like, when you're a beginner, you got to do the right things for yourself. Social dance. Take lessons if you actually want, if you're taking it seriously. Listen to the music a lot, a lot, a lot. I listen to it every day. I always researching what new tracks. And I'm, I ain't no DJ. So when I'm in class and I'm like, I want to play this new song, I want to tell my students, hey, by the way, this is the latest salsa music that just came out. There's a new album or there's a new band in Sydney. But you were telling me some of the things that you learned from dancing that you're able to use in your everyday life. Mm hmm. Yeah, so um, first thing is um, social communication skills and networking skills. Like, I've learned that from salsa and bachata, you're not dancing. You're you're no longer alone. You know, you dance ballet, you dance jazz, you hold yourself. You know, you fuck up, you're a mistake. 
But when you're dancing salsa and bachata, it's such a strong sense of teamwork. You know, you need a good follow. You need a good lead. And you need good music. So it's a combination of all these things that makes it strong, that makes it so special and so fun. So, and it applies to my everyday life in a way that it opened my eyes to see that I'm not alone, you know, especially growing up wanting to be a dance professional. I always thought this is going to be hard because I'm going to have, it's a one way, it's a one man battle, but it's not. I ha I'm very happy to have um, my two mentors at Tropical Soul, I've Josie Kote and Juan Ruiz, they are the best teachers I've had. I'm very glad that I have people like Graham and, and all the friends around me who are always giving me advice, who are always um, telling me, hey, check this out, check this video, helping me with my research, giving me new songs. Like, I have a lot of people that I know that I can rely on. And it's crazy because these people are technically strangers. But because of dancing, they're no longer strangers. They're friends. They're, they're people that um, I can trust. And that's, that's really cool. So that's the big thing. It's about learning how to trust and socialize with people that you normally wouldn't. Because um, when you social dance, you don't, you don't know who you're dancing with. You don't know their names. But you know that you can rely on them for the next three minutes to give you the best dance ever. So, yeah, that, that's for me how I how I see it in my daily life. And it's okay. So of course, of course. Um, let me ask you this real quick. Um, you know, so a lot of people have full-time jobs that are not their hobbies. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so, so, so let me ask you this. Um, what are some things that people may not know about the life of a full-time dancer? Ah, okay. That's very that's very interesting because I I only started properly doing this full time maybe like what we're now in we're now in November right October eighth was the official day that I started dancing full time so it's the day where I decided I'm gonna dance full time it's the date that I'm gonna remember for the rest of my life so it's not that long ago but one of the big differences or one of the big misconceptions is people think that all we know how to do is dance. That is a big, big no-no. Like, right now, to survive in a dance industry, you have to have so many skills. You don't have to have all of them, but you need to know your career pathway and what you want to become and get the skills towards that. And that's something that I'm trying to find for myself now, but while I don't know, I'm still trying to get all the skills I can. So that includes um, social media marketing. You need to know how to use Facebook, use Instagram to your benefit. And sometimes you're going to have to pay for the promotion. Use Google. Google right now is the big thing. You go to Sydney, people obviously, they want to look for something, but they're going to Google it or they're going to go on Facebook, search for it. So same thing. Um, DJing, oh, sorry. My hand got shaky, but DJing and editing skills. A lot of people don't know how to edit music. And it frustrates me when I look at the competition. Your choreography is amazing, but then the cut in the music, the timing doesn't match. And I'm like, this should be something that you get deducted for. If you're a professional, you need to know how the music flows. You need to research the lyrics to make sure that the flow of the choreography still makes sense for what the song is actually being sung about. So that's another skill that is really basic. And there's so many more. Like you need to know how 
to, um, well, you need teaching itself is already a skill. And it's not an easy skill. And I learned that the hard way because I picked up teaching very, very quickly. And then I started needing to mentor people into teaching. So I had people, I had male leads who were my assistants and I would leave the class. And, and I realized, oh, wow, it's not really like some people for them, it comes to them very naturally, but some it doesn't. So you need to know that. So, um, and the other thing is a lot of people think that it's easy. A lot of people think that, oh, you, you, all you have to do is dance, be creative, you're fine. Not easy. It's a lot of networking. It's a lot of hard work behind the scenes. Um, we have a saying in China or in Hong Kong and just in the Chinese language. And it basically means admitted on stage reflects 10 years of hard work. Oh, that's so true. And I like that. Yeah, it's a lot to do behind the scenes. Like, even if you look at one choreography, three minutes on stage, how long it's taken for that teacher to choreograph that thing, let alone teach it to students, you know, and all that, like, at, at the end of the day, um, it's not about the money. It's about you want to make it look good. You want to make it meaningful. You want to make your students feel like, I want to come back and learn more. And that's the most gratifying thing. So a lot of people think it's easy. It's something that you just need to know how to dance and that's it. It's totally not true. Right now, and especially with technology, you need to know how to use your technology to the T a lot. And, and right now as at Tropical Soul where I'm working, I actually do most of their marketing work. So a lot of things I have to learn how to use Photoshop. Sometimes I use Canva from time to time, but I need to learn how to edit. And I need to learn how to use all these softwares because if you're not able to sell the school, who's going to come? You know, it's not just about your quality of work. You also need to put a name out there. So that's really important. So, yeah. That's Those super important. Names. Yes, of course. Having, having an online presence. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And the Internet has just changed the social dance world a lot. Like, for example, you look at Bachata Central. And you look at the chat, the fusion and how big it is today. And I look and I, I had a speculation about this with my teacher, Juan. And one of the things that it's not just the dancing that makes them super famous online. It's not just the dancing that puts them gigs. It's the present. It's the fact that they upload every workshop that they have. They're basically dance vloggers. They film their daily lives. You look at Daniel Desiree. They film their baby girl. Abriel everywhere. You know, you look at Carol Flores and she shares her holidays with her boyfriend. Okay, you, know? you, you become kind of like, I guess, invested in that person, right? Is that what it is? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is what's trending now. People don't want to just see the dancer. They want to see the person. So, but that itself, again, is a misconception, like, which is you just dance and that's it. It's not. You, people want to know you. People want to know what your life is like and all that. They want to know your routines. They want to know what you're eating for breakfast. Like, it's crazy. Um, so it's, uh, it's a whole new trend together. You know, your pot, your pot dancer and pot blogger or pot YouTuber in some sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it's and so, and so I guess, job. yeah, I, I guess really, um, you know, you're creating your own brand, though, right? You as a dancer, yeah. you're creating a brand, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's all about, it, it comes down to branding and it's also about, um, I guess, 
finding the balance between being genuine to your audience and your viewers and also knowing what's you, you know? Because I, I, I know there are some people, they have a um, online face and it's just fake account. I look at them and like, because I know them all behind the scenes and I'm like, girl, that ain't you. Like, that is so not you. But um, nowadays, that's why a lot of people or a lot of the most successful people are the ones who are the most genuine on the camera. And you can tell that they're not faking it on the camera, you know, because when you meet them in real life or a lot of artists, when they, um, for example, I have Marco and Sarah, they have a big Instagram follow. They're basically now the new Daniel and Desiree of the job, you know, and then they came to Australia and then I see them in person and they're identical to what they show online. That's awesome. This is great. You know, this is what you want. You want to be able to follow them online. And then when you see them real life, you know it's real and you know it's genuine. Yeah, yeah, genuine. So, that, that always wins. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's a big, comp- it's a very complicated, but if you are always genuine with what you do, if you have a very, um, if you have a genuine and a very passionate brand, then people are going to follow you. It's just a matter of time. It's a matter of knowing the right people and having the right skills. And right. dancing alone is not going to get you there. Takes more, right? Mm. Yeah, it's it's a bunch of things all together to right. make it happen. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so let me ask you this real quick, Dan. Um, I guess how would you how would you define success for yourself? And and maybe you already feel successful. So like, do you have do you have any future goals? Like, what are some future goals you have? How would mm. you define success for yourself? Yeah. So. On a tangible level, success for myself is to say that this is a sustainable career in a way that I'm getting, you know, stable salary, stable work, um, and which is which I don't have all of them right now. I'm happy to say that stable salary is one that is picked off the books, so which means I can still pay my rent, I can still pay my bills. That's, that's awesome. You know? That is very yeah. important. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so it's um, for me. Um, yeah, uh, I want to be sustainable in a way that, first of all, I don't need to worry about my rent and all that, but I can also invest in things towards my health. So I'm, I still don't have like a proper um, health insurance, which I think is proper for a dance career yet. I'm still kind of on the basic health care. But good thing about Australia is that free health care. Yeah, so um, I want to I wanna be at a place though where I can still um, afford better insurance for myself say if I have an injury or um, I've actually like because of all of the dancing that I do now I've had a, a couple of sprains I had a dislocation in the knee which I'm recovering so but these are stuff that you got to watch out for you know so I want to look for that um, the other big goal that I want to do is um, I want to become a director of either an existing school or set up my own school and I want to I haven't quite found what I want to properly do yet in the salsa and bachata career. At the moment, the short-term goal is to be able to do as many as possible. The long-term goal is to be able to continue to educate, you know, because um, it's about, because that, your legacy in dancing or your legacy in anything you do comes down to education. So I want to have the resources to be able to do something similar to what 
my mentors now are doing to me. They are paying me a salary. They're hiring me for work, but they're also mentoring me every step of the way. They're supporting my dancing. They are sponsoring me from going to festivals uh, when I go to festivals, so I don't have to buy passes. I can teach, which is great. And I want to be at a level where, when I'm ahead of my own school, or if I'm ahead of an existing school, maybe tropical soul, who knows? Um, I want to be able to provide the same experience, the same learning journey to someone else who is uh, in the future who might be just as passionate, but they don't know where they want to go. And I'm like, I want to show them the reins. I want to do that same thing. For me, that's the bigger long-term goal. That's awesome. That's a awesome. Very fake answer, you know. It's not. That's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, like I said, that's perfect. Um, you you know you have you have a goal in mind though, that way, of where you want to go, where you're headed, which is so important. Yeah, like um, I d- don't do anything without a purpose. Don't do anything without a goal. It's nah. so bad if you don't. And that's why some people like they do it, but they hate it, but they want to do it well. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Go find something else. Yeah. I've had students who come to me and they say to me, oh, like I'm actually not that comfortable with salsa and bachata, but their girlfriend does it, their friends do it. And I'm like, okay, so why are you doing it? They're like, because I feel the pressure. I want to do it well because they're doing it so well. And I've actually been honest because the last thing that I want to see is a student that is unhappy. The last thing I want to see is Why do it if you're not happy? Exactly. You know, like you're, it's not for everyone. You know, some people, they are not comfortable with dancing with other people. And I look at them and I go like, this is not your thing. I'm like, no stress. You don't have to make it your thing, even if your friends are telling you that. And, you so, know, and so I, you have to be honest with yourself, right? First, yeah. be honest with yourself and what you want. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that also kind of relates to what we said about branding before. If I'm genuine that with myself, then hopefully I can, or then hopefully we can inspire people because I speak with um, on a very low level, but I know a lot of professionals have found their own genuine branding. Then hopefully people who have just entered the scene can find their own genuine voice as well. And, and if it doesn't speak to them, it doesn't. And I'll say, I'll say real quick though, um, people can also tell when you're faking it. It might take them a while. You might be really good at faking it, but eventually they'll figure it out, and they'll they'll see that you're not authentic. You're not being genuine with it. Oh yeah, for sure. Of course, of course, yeah. Um, real quick, let me. I want to ask you this question. Um, mm-hmm. and I want to hold you up too much longer, but um, can you give me? One tip that can make anyone a better dancer immediately. Mm, that's a <laughs> so. I'm I'm picking up on the details on your question here just to make sure. So one tip: become a better dancer immediately. Instantly, give give me one tip that can make me a better dancer right now. listen to hell ton of music that's the biggest advice that i can give that's perfect yeah because this style a lot of people is like oh yeah this style originated from this originated from that but uh, even when i teach in tropical soul we saw we are trained or we know that none of the stand styles would have existed if it weren't for the music if it weren't for the basic percussion you know, so those little rhythms are what started the movement. 
if you don't understand the music, you're not going to understand the dance. If you don't understand the history of the music, you're not going to understand the dance. So if you want to get better right away, listen to Hell Ton of Music. Like non-stop, back to back. And that's what I did uh, when I first started Salsa Bachata and I started seeing that there was a potential career. I just went on that YouTube. I went on Spotify and I listened to a bunch of music. I didn't care if it was crappy or not. I didn't care if it was old school or not. I didn't care what band it was. I just listened because it helped me understand the rhythm of it. I did my research through listening. And that was it. And I spoke no Spanish, but sometimes you don't have to speak Spanish to learn how to dance. Yeah, you know, you don't yeah have exactly. To, to understand the music, which is great. That's so true. That's so true. Um, I, I guess, you know, at this point, I want to just thank you, Kelsey, you know, for taking time to talk to me. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, wow. So we delved into a lot of things. Like we had like social political stuff in Hong Kong and then we got to all these dancing tips and all the dance history that I have. But it's great. Like thank you for having me. Oh, of course. I'm so glad I got to talk to you and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really do. Um, do me a quick favor. Tell me, um, you know, what are some of your upcoming events? You know, what do you have going on in your life? Ah, okay. So um, at the moment, I'm, um, I'm, well, I'm based in Sydney, duh. So um, we're going <laughs> to, whoa, no, I'm back in Hong Kong, man, just in the flash. Nah. So um, right now, um, well, I'm about to compete in the um, World Salsa Solo in Brisbane in December. So I have a number of routines and I also have some freestyle competitions coming up. So I'm um, very excited for that. Um, have you heard of Mr. Don in Bajata? I have not. Oh, have you heard of DJ Khaled? I have, definitely, yeah. Well, not the DJ Khaled that we know. Not oh. the one in the podcast. <laughs> right, well, then I have There's not heard of DJ Khaled. It's all right. So, so we have a Bachata DJ. So his name is Mr. Don. Um, he has a, he, I think one of his most famous songs you type on YouTube is called Hookah and Sheridan. Really good Bachata song. So I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah, he's going to be coming to Sydney. And I got invited to teach the free party workshop. And then I'm going to be performing there as well, which is super cool. Um, and then what else is there? And then next year, well, I that's for me for the upcoming year. And then what I'm planning for next year is I'm going to be going to Mumble Land because I want to I wanna expand my horizons. So far, I've only been dancing in Sydney. I want to start dancing overseas. So I want to I wanna learn from the best of the best. So I'm going to go to Mumble Land Milan in April. And um, I have a friend of mine, um, his name's Enzo, and he's going to try and get me to, um, I think it's called the Queer Land Dance Festival in Oakland, San Francisco. I forgot the exact name, but, um, you know, have, because, um, yeah, because I'm not going to dwell into that today, but um, I'm, part, I'm LGBT as well. So um, it's great that I can represent and it's also kind of challenges me to want to learn how to lead and follow and learn every aspect of flying dancing as well. So oh, that makes you a better cool. dancer right there, though. Learning yeah, to lead and follow. Definitely. Yeah, and when you teach, you got to learn how to do Of both. course, of course. Like, I teach a male student. I can't just go, like, uh, just lead. You know, you can't tell your student that. That's ridiculous. No, that's but so true. Gotta... That's so true. Yeah, you got to be able to tell them, ooh, like, loosen up on the thumb. Oh, don't forget to drop your hands. Make sure to prep, prepare properly. Like, you got to know these things. So, very excited. Next year, I'm planning to travel a lot more. So, it's a, a good start. And now that I'm at the financial state that I can 
go and travel. So I want to make use of it while I can, which is awesome. Real, real quick. So you, you know, you're, you're you're teaching at Tropical Soul, right? Um, what is yeah. your te- what is your teaching schedule? You know, Monday through Friday, or you know? uh, yeah. So um, so I teach on Mondays. I teach the um intermediate classes. So I teach um, so we have salsas one to six. So I teach salsa level four, and I teach salsa level two. So I teach begin. I'm teaching the beginners advanced. Uh, no, sorry, beginners intermediate and the intermediate level. Bachata. I teach the top level, level six with my man Juan Ruiz, so it's really, really fun. And then on Wednesdays and Thursdays, I teach the beginner's level. So I teach absolute beginner's salsa, absolute beginner's bachata. And occasionally, um, I do teach the taste of workshop. So for anyone who has never danced ever in their lives, but they don't know whether they want to invest in a proper six-week course, we do two-hour workshops every six weeks. And it just kind of gives people a um, like a little taste of what salsa, bachata, and merengue is. We teach all three styles, we get them to dance them, and then from there they can decide if this is for them or this is not. Which is really, really cool, you know? You yes, that's really cool. That that's awesome. That's really cool. I like that idea. Yeah. Um, tell, tell me this real quick. Uh, how can people get in contact with you? How can they reach out to you? Ah, so um, you can hit me up on Facebook. So my name is uh, Kelsey Chow. So that's K-E-L-S I, my name is spelt really weirdly, so and don't find any other Kelsey, just someone else. So Kelsey Chow, um, you can find me on Instagram. My name is dancefreak underscore KLC. Very weird name, but it's cool. And also you can follow us at Tropical Soul Dance on Instagram and Tropical Soul Dance Studio on the page. So um, I'm at the moment, the technically speaking, I'm the business manager of the, of, of the school. So if whenever you're sending an email, you're talking to me. So feel free to hit me an email there as well. We do private lessons, wedding dance lessons, and we have weekly classes to make you a better dancer. Um, I I do teach my own choreography. The school teaches choreography. So if you want to, and we have a lot of social events, which is the most important thing. We have plenty of chances for you to go out dancing. So we have a party I think every two weeks, which is super cool. Yeah, and then uh, we have the Sydney International Bachata Festival, which the owner of the school actually is the founder of, which is the which is the which is the first ever bachata festival in the world. In case you didn't know that, I did not know. That's awesome. The Sydney Bachata Festival was the first bachata festival in the world, only for bachata. That's awesome. Yeah, so I'm gonna put a plug for that as well because I'll be running that and helping out with those as well. I might be performing and teaching a workshop there too. So yeah, um, find me on uh, find me on Facebook, find me on Instagram. You can hit me with a direct message, and yeah, that's it. Yeah, like I said, Cassie, I really, I really want to thank you so much, you know, for taking time out today to talk to me. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for your questions. Like, <laughs> super cool, man. <laughs> um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I can really tell. You know how passionate you are, you know, about uh, dancing for general for for one, and you know, and then Latin, you know, salsa and bachata, you know, for two. I can tell how passionate you are. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Of course, yeah, thank you. Really, really love it so much, and it's so weird. You have a Hong Kong person living in Australia, right? Salsa and bachata. <laughs> you know, like how much more multicultural can you get? Right. right? Seriously. <laughs> and so, and so, I'll say this. You know, I've been I interview a lot of dancers, and um. What I find is that a lot of dancers they they definitely have a background in salsa, and what I also find is that you know salsa is just it's 
everywhere. You know, it's not just American. It's not just Australia. It's all the continents, everywhere, all across the globe. They dance salsa, which is so impressive. Oh yeah, I love it. Like I have, I have some of my students. They go like, "Hey, I need to go here for work. I'm planning to go here for work holiday. Where do I go dance?" And I can immediately go this place, this place. Check out this person. Check out that person. Go to this class. Go to that class. Like it's so. And because of technology now, because of social media, it's so easy to be connected with each other around the world, and it's so much better to. It's so much more convenient and、um, more proud to say that this is a a global community rather than having segmented kind of little local salsa clubs and all that. This is a entire nat、uh, entire world. Loving this style, and there's no discrimination. There's no age group. There's no stereotypes. We just dance, and this is beautiful. It's a gorgeous thing. That is so true, so true. That's why. That's why we do it. You know, we enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> What do you dance? I'm curious now. Okay, I mean, to be honest with you, um, I've been dancing salsa for the past seven eight years. Oh damn. Yeah, so I've been dancing salsa for the past seven, eight years. At some point, I transitioned into bachata,、uh, then transitioned into kizomba, and then transitioned into Brazilian zouk. Oh shit! Yeah, yeah. But right now, my favorite is kizomba. I absolutely love kizomba. Ah,、yeah. I'm glad to learn kizomba. I,、uh, we have we have kizomba instructors.、Um, so it's another Asian dude, actually, at an Australian、ah. uh, born um, Asian, and his name's Kev. And we have a French、um, female instructor named Audrey, and they're trying to drag me to learn kizomba as well. So、okay. I had my first kizomba social dance about two weeks ago. So I'm like, okay, maybe I'll check it out. Hey, hey, I actually, I've actually interviewed some kizomba instructors in Australia, so I need to link you up with them. Oh yeah. Yeah,、oh. definitely. Yeah. Um, was one of them like Genevieve or something? No, her name is Amaryllis. Ah, yeah, I've heard of her. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, she's um, she's really good. She's really good. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah, it's it's what I, what I find is that the dance community is like it's kind of small. Everyone kind of knows everyone. <laughs> yeah, and Sydney, man. I mean, like we're we're like on our side of the globe, and we have a tiny community, but it's growing. It's growing fast. And the funny thing is, each style of dance, they're claiming that their style is taking over. But there isn't really one like、um, bachata, like because I have two of my mentors. One of them is all the way salsa, salsa on two, New York style, and I love New York style as well. And then my my other one, Juan. So Josie salsa, Juan is all the way bachata. So one of them is saying salsa is taking over. The other one is saying bachata is taking over, and I'm in the middle, going like, why not both? <laughs> you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like they both fit. Together so nicely. Of course, you know? yeah. I mean, especially when you and, go to Sosa, you know they're gonna play both genres. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I find also like lately there's in Sydney in particular there's a lot more parties where it's like single style, and then they have a second room. That's and, really cool. That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. Um, it's good for a little bit, but in time you kind of feel like I don't want to go from room to room just to listen both styles of music. I want to listen to both in the same room. I want to be able to sit、uh -huh. down. Or dance, and I want to be able to pace myself. You know,、okay. for me, bachata is kind of the more relaxing one. Salsa, especially when they play kind of the hardcore, wawancore,、uh, and all the funny old stuff kind of band stuff. And, you know, you you just want to go all out. 
So you want to pace yourself in the same way. You can't. Uh, I, 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 I get you. I love having just salsa all the way all night. I love having bachata. You want to stay in the same mood, but sometimes you want. I like it when they change it up a little bit. Of course, yeah. So, the variety. The variety is what makes it better. Yeah, exactly. So when there's parties that they say like two-two rotation or three-two rotation, I love it. You I know? definitely understand that. I definitely do. Yeah. And then meanwhile, there's Kazumba is like, hey, we still have our own room. <laughs> In Sydney, it's like Kazumba and Zook always have their own room. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because they use, um, in a way that they use less space, but it's also like, I, but it goes well with bachata, but not so with salsa for the music. Because it's exactly. the same kind of tone, same kind of flow. Um, but still, like that, I wouldn't mind going into that room you know for yeah, me yeah, yeah. Like a good mix and then bachata kuzuma and zook all together which i think exactly and i definitely understand that i definitely understand yeah. that honestly like i said kelsey thank you so much i really enjoyed this thank you it's really fun thank of course of course of course of course when i also when i upload this i'm gonna make sure i put all your contact information in the details below i got you on that all right yeah thank you so much that'd be great Hey, of course, of course. Can't wait to see it. But yeah, like I said, thank you so much, Kelsey. Of course, yes, of course. <laughs> um, so I think I think this will do it for this episode of the Two Lift Podcast. Thank you so much, Miss Kelsey. Ciao. Thank you. <laughs> Ciao. Ciao. <laughs> <laughs>